Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Namita Purohit and today I have a very special guest with me, Sri Rajiv Malhotra ji. Wish you a very, very warm uh, namaskar and a very warm welcome from me and our team over here, sir. Thank you Thank so much you. for being here. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear okay. you very well, sir. Yeah, I, I think it was, it was a very remarkable coincidence. Uh, I was in the lobby of the Imperial Hotel waiting to be picked up by somebody. Uh, and here walks an elderly gentleman with his daughter to me to, to sort of say hello. And I, I, I didn't recognize either of you, but it was a very nice meeting to your father and you. And then you invited me and I said, you know, this is a very sincere person and what you are doing is very interesting. I should definitely accept this invite. So here we are. One little caveat, a couple of caveats I want to make. Uh, one is uh, regarding my background. Yes, in the 70s, uh, I was involved in artificial intelligence. Now, people sometimes would like to pull, you know, try, like to bring you down and make fun of you will say things like there was no AI, but there was AI. It was not in its present level of sophistication. As a theoretical model, AI has been around for a very long time. It's just that there weren't these uh, learning systems. Machine learning wasn't like it is today. Uh, this whole idea of these large language models didn't exist. The computer hardware power, which is required, did not exist. And the data sets on which the learning happens did not exist. So what existed, we were trying to uh, teach computers to play chess, which is very elementary today. Um, uh, and we were trying to do other kind of pattern recognition, teach uh, handwriting analysis, so handwriting recognition. So how you write the letter A uh, is the different for different people, but it should recognize everybody. And this is a very big challenge in those days. How to recognize voice spoken words was very big, very big uh, challenge. Even in the late 80s, when I was uh, consulting with uh, AT&T Bell Labs, uh, they had six labs around the world just trying to recognize human speech and even recognizing digits 0, 1, 2, 3. So you could speak out uh, something like that. It was a very big challenge in those days. And of course, everybody working on facial recognition, not very easy thing to do. So the kinds of things that we take for granted today were being pursued long ago. Uh, and and the, the, the theoretical foundations existed. I just wanted to clarify that. Thank you. Thank you, too. Uh, thank you for giving us a window into your work at that time and what it looked like at that time. Appreciate your thoughts very much, sir. So uh, recently we're seeing that, you know, uh, just uh, Ajay Banga has been appointed as the World Bank CEO, the head of the World Bank. And, uh, you know, the, uh, we have Satya Nadella at, you know, the Microsoft CEO. We have uh, Sundar Pichai with Google. And we have so many Indians doing so well, uh, leading so many different powerful companies and so many different power positions. Uh, and not just the first, the top level of leadership, I'm sure that tier two, tier three, tier four, it's full of Indians and they're doing so very well. Uh, we are also one of the richest uh, immigrant populations in the US and in so many different countries across the world. Uh, what are the, what do you attribute uh, this success of Indians to? Like, you know, what is it, what is their USP that makes them so successful? So I will discuss this uh, issue of uh, the success of Indians and it's linked to our heritage and, and so on. Uh, and the, the fact that competitiveness and learning and uh, education is part of our DNA culturally. But first I want to say that not all Indians in the United States are rich. 
many are taxi drivers working in gas stations, working in restaurants as waiters, working in convenience stores. There, there are lots of those kind of people also. So let's not forget them. Also, I want to uh, make sure we're not being very elitist because the 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 successful tier of NRIs in this country are not representative of the ordinary population in India. Uh, and I think that's a foolish uh, uh, equation. Uh, very often, like I go to India three, four times a year for the last 30 years. And, uh, you know, I am very familiar uh, because I go all over the country and meet all strata of people. You know, you have a typical conversation with somebody in Kotak Bank and uh, they're doing something so silly. They just can't even get their act together. And when you start criticizing them, they'll say something like, oh, how can you criticize me? Uh, we know one, uh, you know, so, so, so Indian is in uh, head of Google or so many Indians in NASA, as if, you know, his own incompetence can be compensated and covered up because some other Indian is doing well. This has become a very common uh, sort of almost like chauvinism. I don't have to do anything. It's like a batsman saying I got out for zero. But you know what? Tendulkar scored all those centuries. I mean, that really makes no sense to me. And also this business that the rishis are so great. You know, 5,000 years ago, they did this, they did that. I tell them, well, what are you doing? The rishis are great and you should, be very, you should be honoring them. But the way to honor them is not sort of show off and brag, but do something. Do so. so I think the average Indian is not living up to either our ancient civilization, the rishis, nor living up to the greatness of the today's best examples of the Indian elite. The average Indian is not like that. So, so there is a natural selection. For one of the factors is that only certain people got into the United States on a meritocracy. The United States is a very meritocracy-oriented place. And so its method of selection, there are two methods of selection. One is those whose relatives are American citizens can sponsor. And they are not necessarily doing the, the elite in terms of performance. They are a lot of taxi drivers who bring in the whole community. I mean, you have uh, entire villages in, in Punjab. Uh, the Jats have gone and uh, settled in not only USA and Canada and all that because entire villages have emptied out and gone. So you won't find those guys uh, doing the, the jobs of, uh, you know, uh, Sundar Pichai or uh, Nadella or any of those. Uh, you will find them as, you know, taxi drivers and truck drivers and things like that. So uh, you have to keep in mind that there are many kinds of Indians. As we know, India is a very diverse place. And hence, the mirror image in the United States is also very diverse. There are a lot of different kinds of people. So I wanted to uh, give that uh, view first. Second thing I want to say is that the reason Indians are successful is that the success of Indians in the United States is also a tribute to American structures of meritocracy. Because, you know, the same Indians in India are not as successful because the structures of meritocracy are not the same. So the success of a person also depends on the structure in which he's operating. So if I come to an American company and it's very highly meritocratic and, and I do very well, it's also because the system is nurturing me, the way we run meetings, the way there is performance, the way the people are held to responsibility, uh, the way you are encouraged, the way you are trained, the way you are pushed forward how everybody gets up and you're at work at 8.30 in the morning and in India, or at least in Delhi, you know, and office hours are 10, but nobody shows up till 11. And then in a couple of hours, it's lunchtime. I mean, the work ethic is different. So, you know, I, I, I would say that the performance of Indians in the United States has a lot to do with American work ethic, work culture, structures of meritocracy, etc. And so part of that success has to be acknowledged. 
the, the, the factor. Then there is the individual who comes into this. So Indians have assimilated by learning the game. So the game has been developed by the Americans. Cricket was developed by the British. Similarly, the, the work-related meritocracy is a game. It's an American game. And you must learn the rules. You must learn how to play the game, what to do, what you're not allowed to do, uh, you know, how to learn from the other guy, beat him. You know, so this business of Indians performing well in the United States has two factors. One is the American factor. The other is the Indian factor. The American factor is they have built this game of meritocracy and a whole ecosystem that encourages it, which Indians have not built in India. And this business in America is not an Indian creation. It's a made in America creation. And the second factor is the Indians as individuals, individuals have been able to assimilate, learn the game, figure it out and outperform other people. So that's in a nutshell what I think is the is the reason for Indians succeeding in the United States. And I would say that uh, to look at the success is one part. But to go deeper and say, why hasn't the same success happened in India? Why hasn't India created the Google? Why hasn't India created all these structures? You know, why didn't India create, uh, I can go on giving you a long list. Why isn't there that same innovation in India? And why are Indians able to be so innovative in the American structure, but not, in, not to the same extent in the Indian structure? That's a very important thing. So here, you know, here you have to draw a comparison with China. China has created its own game. China has created its Made in China game, how their economy works, how they, how they push people to meritocracy. They've copied, stolen a lot of American technology. But the social structure, the commercial structure, the corporate structure is a very Made in China thing. And the Chinese meritocracy is a very uh, indigenous development. The in Indians have not been able to create a Vedic work culture. Indians are disconnected from the Vedic work culture. We have more of a British and then American influenced hybrid kind of a culture, work culture. Okay, it's neither here nor there. But if you really ask me what's deficient in the Indian success story, it is that we have not been able to connect with our indigenous work culture, social structure based on the Vedas, the way the Chinese have been able to con have connection with their own deep culture. And in fact, they're projecting on the world stage that their, their work ethic and their system, their political system, their social system is superior to the West. They're not interested in copying the West. They're, they're saying we're superior to the West and we'll outperform you and we'll become the number one power in the world in every sense of the word. And you guys better watch out. And they're about to do that. So if you think of the Indian success, it is at the individual level. It is not at the collective level. Okay, they all. Uh, it is at the. It is disconnected from our own heritage. It is not a continuation of our heritage that causes us to be successful. And most of these people all generally abandon their heritage in order to be successful, or at least in the workplace. Maybe in their homes they are still living the Vedic lifestyle, but it's a disconnect between the private life and the public life. So I wanted to make all these points uh, clear. And I, I, I'm being provocative because that's how I believe. And so you're welcome to ask me further probing questions and disagree with me. And your viewers are welcome to disagree with me. And I'll be happy to answer. We're learning, sir. We're learning from your views right now. Uh, I have a question for you. 
going back to what makes an Indian immigrant successful in the West, and what you said is that there are these Western American meritocracy structures that have been created and that and the Indians have understood that game and they have mastered it and they know how to be successful in that game. Uh, I would uh, like to argue here that there are a lot of immigrants, uh, Chinese, uh, you know, a lot, lot of Eastern European, European immigrants, etc. A lot of them over there in the in the states, but still, Indians rank higher in you know their wealth, in the number of positions that they have acquired, etc. Is it just the English language that we, you know, tend to do a little better because of the whole British effect that we have? Or is it still something that can be attributed to our culture, even if they don't seem to practice it, even if they seem to be uprooted from it? Yeah, I, I certainly have a lot of regard for our Vedic heritage. Uh, so there is an unconscious, unconscious uh, level in us, which is Vedic still, thank God, unconscious. Even those who reject it, even those who say, well, you know, it doesn't have any rele anything relevant to my work, my, my life in, in the office, uh, in my, my business life, it has nothing to do with that. Even those people are unconsciously benefiting from this Vedic culture. So I think, the, I think the, you cannot underestimate the relevance of our society, our, our ancient society in today's performance. You know, the whole idea, the whole attitude towards education, a lot of emphasis on education, uh, family structures that we have that are from our Vedic heritage, they have a role to play. I mean, you have in the United States, a lot of people who are certain ethnic groups because they have broken homes. They come from homes. There are ethnic groups where, you know, the father is a large percent of them are in jail or in trouble or drug addicts. And, you know, you don't raise kids properly that way. So I, I would say that, yes, there is a there is a lot of unconscious uh, benefit that we are carrying with us. But, you know, to make it conscious would be good because then we would be able to uh, we would be able to uh, uh, turn it into social social theory. We, we, we need to have Vedic social theory, political theory, economic theory come out explicitly because then it can be it can be institutionalized. Then it can be passed on to the education system. One of the criticisms I've had in my recent trip to India when I launched this uh, the books on on Vedic society and all that, I asked uh, Madhu Kishwar and uh, Kapil Kapoor in a, in a video which is now available on my website, on my YouTube, why has there not been, why have Indians failed to create a Vedic social sciences? And, and the answer that Kapilji gave, which I didn't accept, was that we are practicing the Indian dance, we are practicing the family life, we don't, we don't need to have a theory, we are practicing it. You see, a lot of Indians feel that as long as you are practicing the ritual, you don't need to understand it. As long as you are practicing uh, the, the, you know, you're practicing a certain life, you don't need to understand that it's theoretical framework. And I disagreed with him because he is has one of his accomplishments is that he has created the theory of, of aesthetics, the theory of Indian Indian you know uh, uh, Nadishastra. I mean, brought it into modern modern form and constructed the English editions for it. And he is somebody who's been teaching Ashtadhyayi, which is a structure of grammar and Sanskrit. So how can he say that structures don't matter and, and writing them explicitly and teaching them don't matter? That is his own life. It's just that in the case of social sciences, we haven't done that. 
We have done it in grammar. We've done it in Nati Shastra. We were doing it in yoga. It is not enough to just practice. You also must know the theoretical framework and the structures because the intellectual ideas in it and the practice of it are both important. So in the case of Vedic social sciences, we have failed to create a what could be taught, what could be a pedagogy of the Vedic social sciences, Vedic sociology. Why is there no such thing? Why is all the sociology taught in India Western? So you see, that is an issue. When you talk about the, the to what extent are we bringing Vedic society, Vedic ideas with us? I would say unconsciously we're practicing. Thank God we're still practicing. But the conscious level of turn, of using all that to create modern society, modern social systems, political systems, economic systems, we haven't done that. And I was uh, hearing a talk by you in Mumbai with Ratan Shardaji, and you were mentioning these points there as well. And you know, yes. I got thinking that the West has done a very good job of making structures about our culture, the sciences, and then they're selling it back to us. And then you talked about the whole. Uh, I think Ratan Shardaji talked about what you mentioned in your books about digestion. Yeah, you uh, know, you know, there's a talk in Mumbai since you're from Mumbai, uh, a guy called Ganesh Arnal. Uh, we used to bring me to Mumbai, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And in one of these, uh, you know, there's a South South Indian university somewhere uh, in Mumbai. Yes. Yeah. So in that, I gave a bunch of talks. One of them was called, uh, uh, is the West stealing our culture and selling it back to us? There's a whole uh, huge, I, I gave this talk and there was a Q&A. And it's very interesting how in the audience, there were a bunch of these guys who were very left-wing type of people, very upset and all that. And that's where I was introducing the idea of digestion. So I've been talking about the theory of digestion for 30 years. In fact, the first uh, thing that got me going in this area, in this field of studying my own culture uh, and its encounter with the rest of the world was this whole discovery, my discovery of the phenomenon I'm now calling digestion. And the idea of U-turn, how people come and study and they respect us, and they have a guru and then they go back and say, oh, we already had it in Judaism. We already had it in Christianity. We had it in Western science and Plato knew about it and Newton knew about it and so and so knew about it. And then they distance themselves from the Indian origins, which they earlier benefited from. And some of them start trashing. Some of them start trashing the very sources from which they learned. And I have hundreds of examples of that. And I'm writing a 10 volumes on U-turn uh, and digestion. I'm writing. And these are books that ha should have been out 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But always something came in the way. But I want to finish these and get them out. And there are so many disciplines and so many successes in the United States uh, uh, where, which are owed to India and never acknowledged. You see, so it is not just things like yoga and all that, which, of course, is a great example. But there are a lot of things like linguistics. The whole origin of linguistics in Europe started with the study of Sanskrit. And the influence of Indian thought on modern Christianity, modern Christianity in the church. I mean, in the church, the discussions they've had to some extent rejecting because they don't want that paganism coming in. And to some extent learning because they do need all those ideas. How do you bring in parts of the good stuff that you want? and then reject what doesn't fit. That is what digestion is about. When you digest, you reject what doesn't fit, you excrete it, throw it out, and the rest of it you assimilate and become, become a stronger person. 
and the food that you've eaten is gone, disappeared. It's, it doesn't exist anymore. So, so, so partly it's become part, it's become part of the person who's digested it and doesn't exist. And partly he's rejected it as something useless. So that is what's happening to Indian culture. So when we say we are very, being very successful in the export of yoga, I think our authorities haven't understood. We are supplying something to be digested. And we are not, it's, 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 it's integrity is not being preserved. And I'm fighting that all the time. Yeah, when you go to the gym in the US, like when I'm in Seattle and I'm in the gym there and I go for the yoga class, it's there's no Indian teaching that class. And those teachers are doing a very good job of actually telling you the exact way to do the asana. But beyond that, there is no knowledge. But they've digested no, it. And the, same with the, with the whether it is, uh, you know, uh, you know, pranayam. I mean, this is our own gurus. Our own gurus teaching pranayam, calling it breathing and all that. Pran is not breathing. One of the books you didn't mention, very important one, is called Sanskrit Non-Translatables that I've mm -hmm. done. Where I'm saying that pran is not translatable as breath. Breath is just one handle to manage the pran, but pran is a bigger thing. And Shakti is not energy because, you know, I have electricity, which is energy. But Shakti has got intelligence uh, and, and electricity doesn't. Shakti is conscious. It's a person. Shakti is feminine. These things don't exist in, a, in just electricity and light and other kinds of energy. So this book, Sanskrit Non-Translatable, explains uh, the, that the way we can pre prevent digestion, uh, prevent becoming digested, is by protecting our Sanskrit Non-Translatable terms and using those terms and not translating them into useless reductionist English equivalents. Like, you know, you take Atman and make it soul. Or all kind of, I've given 54 examples, it's half of 108, I wanted to do 108, so maybe there'll be a volume two. Uh, so that's a book that explains why there is digestion is because we've allowed Sanskrit non-translatables to get translated into reductionist forms. And then those reductionist forms replace the original Sanskrit terms. And our thinking changes because we are no longer thinking in terms of our own Sanskrit categories. Right. So going back to this uh, concept that you talked about, which is that, you know, as Indians, now whether it's abroad or even in India, I would like to extend that, is that we are practicing our culture very unconsciously. Yes. And there is no language around it. There is no understanding around it. And there is no, uh, there's no studies on social sciences. And as you had mentioned in one of your other talks, and therefore we can't make uh, teaching pedagogies around it, learning pedagogies around it. And therefore we can't, uh, you know, just take the knowledge forward, you know, give it with proper uh, science and with proper understanding to the next generation. Yes. Uh, I'm on this group. Uh, it's a Facebook group. It has 95,000 Indian expats in the US. I try to answer questions on that group when I have time. I see, and these are all expats in the US, I see at least 10 posts on divorce every day. I'm not joking, sir. It's, it's a true fact. I see posts on mental health issues that people are struggling and most of the posts are anonymous. I see posts on uh, the, the youth, you know, Indian children abroad have you know being diagnosed with ADHD uh, being diagnosed with anxiety disorder and they're on medication I see so many family structures breaking I see this whole concept of individualism uh, leading to a lot of strife within the families etc now is that happening 
while we are practicing the Vedic culture unconsciously, as you had mentioned, but why is this happening amongst Indians? Is it because we're unconscious and therefore we are allowing ourselves to be digested and we are digesting, you know, stuff from outside and, you know, stuff that we should be actually throwing out. We are actually taking that in. Uh, what is happening there? Yeah, I think you've captured it nicely. Uh, so first of all, I want to say that traditionally, Indian thinkers were the greatest builders of taxonomies. So I had this argument with Kapil Kapoorji, whom I respect a lot as my senior. Uh, I've learned a lot from him. Uh, he himself has brought out Indian taxonomies and aesthetics and, you know, uh, language and all that uh, in his work. Uh, so Indian taxonomy of society, social structures, different uh, different kinds of people, what's good for them, uh, how, how and what how conduct should happen. Those taxonomies, when they as they apply to social structures, have become unconsciously applied or not applied at all, thrown out because the West has done a selective digestion of Indian Indian society, Indian culture and Indian thought, and whatever didn't fit, it rejected it, and we've started rejecting those things, and whatever it liked, it turned it into some Western equivalent, and we've accepted that. So in the U-turn, the made the Indian-originated things, after they're digested, get re-exported back to India, and we happily co uh, consume it as an, some American thing, you know? So that part of it is that it's not only the 95,000 expats in India that are facing these issues, it's also the modern elite in India that are facing these issues. You, If you had 95,000 people who are Mumbai-type people, you know, in the same kind of corporate work and all that, you would find that they'd have same kind of questions also. They would also yes. be asking all these questions about, you know, my kids are on drugs and, you know, half of them are divorced and we're having... So, you know, the, the breakdown of the, of the extended family because the, the extended family, Americans are discovering that, you know, uh, kids who are raised with grandparents in the homes are ever advantage because parents are too busy and the grandparents pass on the culture, the values and the, and the unconditional love. So, you know, these are all Indian ideas. These are all things that we have are giving up also as part as a price to pay for modernizing. Uh, the idea that, uh, you know, in the Gurukul, the idea that a child learns according to their individual aptitude, a person who you should read in on, on education is Sri Aurobindo. Sri Aurobindo has a lot, very accessible because he writes in English. He's very solidly Vedic. So his ideas on uh, planes and parts of being, he says that you should think of a person having many planes inside you. And there are many parts, you know, different parts of you. And so the education has to take care of all the parts of you, the physical part, this emotional part, whatever and many planes. It's a beautiful theory of mind, theory of being and how to educate, a theory of education based on that. I wish more, I wish this were taught in India. I wish the people who go and become teachers in all would study this kind of thing and then apply it in their uh, teaching. So Indians are a broken people because bro modern Indians are a broken people. We are very successful uh, in careers, uh, but we are, we are not necessarily uh, have a cogent, consistent lifestyle culturally and civilizationally because we're kind of disconnected from it. The modern gurus are the best we got so far, uh, but they're also kind of uh, market driven. <laughs> you know, imagine in the in the past, to a student would go to the guru and he would reject nine out of 10 and take the most worthy people. And he would make you run around doing things to make sure that you are qualified. 
more difficult than getting into Harvard or something like that. But today they are market oriented. They are running around getting your in exchange for money. They just want you and they'll do they'll dilute their they'll compromise their teachings in order to get bigger market. So the gurus have become like multinationals chasing the dollar, chasing the limelight, chasing, you know, quantitative success, like how many branches they got and how many millions of students they got. Whereas the greatest teachers in our tradition were not measured based on quantitative success or money or how many offices, branches, etc., but based on the quality of few people they would train really well. So, uh, you know, our, our traditional education isn't there, whether it's gurus, whether it's gurukulams, uh, whatever is, not, is out there. A traditional home-based learning, the parents don't, themselves don't know. The parents themselves, uh, you know, are quite confused, quite lost, uh, because they themselves are a product of this mixed-up stuff. So in that, in that uh, context, you know, it's not surprising that a lot of Indian youth are, being, are, are growing up very kind of uh, depressed. Uh, there's a lot of uh, not only divorce, but depression, suicide. Uh, that These are problems that uh, India Indians face. One, one of the things that uh, my Infinity Foundation started sponsoring in the 1990s was uh, we did some, we gave some grants to, uh, one was a, a, a psych, psychologist who wanted to study uh, the bullying of Indians in schools and the mental health that he as a psychologist has in the 90s. Indian families would come to him with all kind of uh, mental health issues in their family uh, related to workplace, related to domestic violence, related to schools, related to being lost and confused, related to, you know, the Western kids, the white kids would make fun of them, that you're worshipping this monkey and this elephant and your mother's got this dot on her head and all of that. And this guy in the 90s was specializing as a psychologist and he applied to me for a grant. We gave him a grant. I think he did some kind of produce something out of it. Uh, several such. Then there was another study that uh, we sponsored where some uh, school system somewhere uh, 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 wanted to study how uh, different ethnic people are facing challenges and Indians were among them. So this is a problem that uh, in the U.S. has been known for several decades, for a few decades. Uh, but Indians as a community have not invested in proper investing in proper studying it uh, there are a lot of indians in mental health but they've not gone into this particular topic uh, enough and i think but you will find that uh, blacks are studying you know what are the issues with black culture and hispanics are studying and so the other ethnicities are studying uh, as minorities you know what are the challenges they face mental in terms of mental health we have not done enough of that but why are we, you know, so self-focused and focused on our individual growth versus, you know, preserving something that is so precious and allowing ourselves to be appropriated, misappropriated by the West and losing out on the very things that make us successful? Why is it that we as a community don't take responsibility? Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, I mean, this is, that's a long story. I, I would say that I'm very disappointed by the same people you consider role models because they're becoming rich. I am very disappointed with them their sense of their lack of responsibility in giving back to the same culture and civilization from which from which they were created, which created them and gave them their success. I, I am disappointed with their level, the amount of selfishness. Uh, and, the, and when they become philanthropists, uh, it is philanthropy for a personal reason. 
it's like what's in it for me uh, what can i give so i'll be given this award i'll get recognized i'll be appointed here i'll become uh, advisor to this pm or that department or whatever they are either leveraging their success for india indian limelight or american limelight okay and they are particularly disinterested in taking on issues that are unpopular because you have to stick your neck out and do something controversial they are not interested in that they are everybody is would be happy to be associated with uh, you know giving food to poor people because there's nothing controversial about it and saying okay uh, we're going to set up a school for poor children somewhere very nice you go and i have a lot of friends who are into that game because it gives them limelight gives them some prestige and you know some famous guy will come as a chief guest and give a speech and it's all politically correct there is no price to pay there's nothing innovative there's no there's no uh, there's no controversy whereas what i'm doing is wanting to stick my neck out where people are not interested in sticking their neck out because it's controversial because it requires a lot of hard work because you have to give up your material success and pursue this at a huge price and one of the huge prices you pay is that you are you become controversial because you're raising those issues you are getting people out of their comfort zone you are getting people out of their comfort zone and they don't want to they want to continue in their comfort zone of success and within that they want to be seen as philanthropists and they are they are into environment because it's all popular you know they're into human rights and social justice but when you tell them that this human rights and social justice movement is actually anti vedic in many ways and the vedic idea of social justice is different you should at least study it and give it equal importance they don't want to touch that because that might ruin their reputation that might ruin their next round of funding that might ruin the value of their shares that might ruin the the seat in some uh, prestigious uh, uh, american institution that they have been give, uh, asked for or in india even the i would say even those who are hindus who are very explicitly hindus and who wear hindu clothes and they go to all these uh, you know hindu oriented uh, activism are often doing it in order to get in the limelight in in india uh, they would like to be picked up by some political party and given a ticket or they would like some hindu organization there to pat their back and make come important so therefore ultimately you're absolutely right the selfishness selfishness is huge among those who are successful who ought to be giving back and when they do claim to give back it is it is with a selfish motive and the motive could be could be as a hindu leader could be as an american success story as the role model minority as a role model asian but whatever it is it's individual it's my personal what do i i have been told for 30 years all the time all the time get out of these controversial things and you got to you got you'll be appointed here you'll be appointed there you could be a big shot here there all kind of stuff but i don't want to do that because i don't want to sell out and it's a it i'm surrounded by very wealthy people all over who are indians who are part of my personal and friendly circle and all that but it's very difficult to get them to put real resources into a cause based on the principles based on this is my swadharma this is my yagna i'm going to give it back return this back to the society uh, that i come from and i'm not concerned about the price to be paid so in terms of social stigma or popularity i'm not concerned about that very few to find those very few people are willing to cross that line 
but again so what is why is it like that why is it that we just think about our individual success it's almost like you know we're we're lining up to get into a slaughterhouse and all we care about is like hey there's a lot of grass right in front of me but i am going into that slaughterhouse and and then they think oh why should i worry you know my kids i am settled you know the next few generations we have the money so and and this is the example that you gave of china and i also can remember some stories from japan where they have focused on preserving their traditional cultures and uh, you know taking care of that and people are investing in that taking care of that believing that they've created learning pedagogies they've created so many different structures around that so you know i can just answer based on my experience and then it's for other people to decide for themselves so i will tell you uh, a very important influence that my guru had on me and i'm talking about 1990s uh, my guru left the body soon after 2000 uh, but that's who transformed me guru, i've learned from many gurus and i respect all of them because whatever they've taught me little bit or whatever is i have gratitude to them and i i i respect them and i've had more than a dozen different gurus at different stages in my life and i'm always looking for knowledge from wherever i can get it but the one who transformed me uh, to the extent that i decided i'll give up all my success i'll give up my life of a certain kind which was very doing very well uh, uh, way before all these new guys who come and become very senior i was already there doing well for that time for that period of uh, you know history in this country very few people were doing well and to get me out of that very happily just get me out of that give it up and never look back and do all of this i owe it to my guru after all this is a transformation that is not easy if not too many people have that so obviously if a guru's influence does that to you you have to have gratitude so how did it happen one of the there are many things that happened but one of them was that i so i understood and fully convinced got fully convinced that you know if i am not this body then my past life was not my parents and my future life is not my biological kids previously i was in some body some previous incarnation my previous birth wherever i was and because of those karma i'm here and because of what i am doing i'll be in my future so therefore my the only the only worthwhile investment is in in doing my swadharma the investment an endless investment in in looking at the next 4 5 6 generations biologically is myopic because that's not my future my future is my humanity my future so my guru used to say that think of all the children in the world as your children and why only those those two that are your biological children why can't you spread that vishalata was the term you know that expansion universalize your uh, your relationships uh, and be there when you see anybody whether he's whatever he is be there for them try to help them so this kind of a meditative practice uh, in society is a meditative practice bringing your advait with you in social relationships was so central to my own transformation starting with people i disagreed with in the office people who were mean to me people who i would have fights with but looking at it as as you know the way arjun is told that even this duryodhan fellow is ultimately the same as you but you got to go fight him on one level you got to fight him 
because that's the role you've been given. That's the Nam Roop in which you are. And that's the Nam Roop in which he is. And he's harming society. You've got to fight him. But when you're fighting him, also remember that that's, the, that's your form. That's your manifestation as Arjun that is doing this fighting. But deeper down, you, are, you, you exist as, at a level where it is the same as this guy. So there is the, there is the sameness and then there is the difference. What is same and what is different? And why at the level of difference you have to fight, but at the, you're never forgetting the deep reality also. So this, uh, this is theory, but very rarely I come across people who actually experienced it the way my, my guru helped me experience, my, enabled me to experience, and then turning that experience into, hey, I'm going to change my whole life because of what I just understood. Because of what I just realized, I, no, I'm not going to live the same way. It's very rare for people to do that. So this is, this is the way forward as per our civilization. You have to have the inner experience. In my case, with the help of a guru, a lot of people have it in different ways. That's fine. But you need to have that inner experience before you can go out and perform an outer role. And the reason that we have produced bad philanthropists, bad social activists, all activism here and there, uh, but ultimately it's something selfish, is because they have not had the inner transformation first. So I'm, I'm raising the bar for you, Namit. Uh, I'm saying you as a leader, as a young person who's understanding all these things, because I can tell you understand all these things, your role first do yourself is inner transformation and then live that life, pay the price, make, put up with people making fun of you and doing all kinds of stuff, you know, put up with all that. And you, you manifest an external life, a social life of Swadharma based on your own inner transformation. And then you can, you can be a role model and teach other people. That is what our tradition teaches. I'm just telling you our tradition. It doesn't say that ignore your own transformation and just go out and learn how to get YouTube views and likes and become popular and go do this, do that. All of that is very important to do. But later, you know, for the first uh, 10 years of uh, this transformation, my guru wouldn't let me go out and uh, talk to him, to give talks or, uh, you know, get involved in some social stuff because my guru would say, who are you? What, what do you think you're going to solve their problem? Have you solved your own problem? And you are going to tell them what to do and what, how much do you know yourself? So I, I had to, <laughs> it was like just banging me and saying, you know, it's all your ego. Is this Rajiv wanting to go out? Now, previously you were running around in the corporate world and you are saying you're sick of that and you want to get beyond it. But now you're going to get into another rat race, which will be this all this philanthropy business. I was scolded uh, to not allow that to happen. And so it was after many years of studying, studying. I was spending that time reading, studying, meditating, listening, learning uh, before, before my guru said, go for it. Go fight this battle. And so I think the people, most of these people who are out there in the limelight trying to represent Hinduism have not gone through that inner transformation. And that is the reason we are failing. Thank you so much for sharing your personal story with us. It's uh, I rarely do that. I mean, very once in a while, I sort of get in the mood and it's the right person asking the right question. And you're asking very good questions. 
Uh, we are very fortunate, sir, that you've been sharing these wonderful things with us. Thank you. So, so, so what I'm understanding is, is that the, an average Indian is not so concerned about, uh, is more concerned about, you know, do I have enough artha? Do I have enough money for like the next few generations? And do I have enough safety and all? And that safety just never ends. You know, it's like a shifting window. And that's because, and because we're just so focused on that, we lose focus on what really Aswadharma is. And it's also happening because we're not in touch with our own eternal true spiritual nature, as you have very rightly explained that, you know, we've had so many parents and so many children and so many different species across so many different lifetimes that we've had. But what what made you different there was that through your guru, and because you were interested in it also, you were able to connect to that, work on that, have your own inner realization, and then engage in your swadharma, where you're not differentiating between these are my children and these are something else. It's all at the platform of the soul. These are souls I help who happen to be my children in this life, but there are all of these souls. It's at the platform of the soul and let me go out and do my service. Uh, have I understood you right? Yeah. I wouldn't use the word soul because our, our own words are equivalent. Okay. Words are not translatable, right. but that's a technicality. But I think the gist of what you're trying to capture is absolutely correct. I think the... Uh, uh, let me also explain another concept, which I think I have not explained publicly, and it's a it's a concept in a huge book of mine. I don't want to uh, disclose these because people trivialize them; they don't understand the whole thing. But I, I I'll take my chances with you. Okay, so you know there is the first person, second person, and third person in speech. In grammar, you learn uh, language works like that. Uh, first person being any time I'm referring to myself, and second person is you. I, you, we are in front of each other, either physically in front of each other or through phone or video or whatever, but I'm addressing somebody in the present moment. And yes. the third person is I'm referring to objects and entities, trees and clouds and uh, the economy and America and India and, the, you know, the dharma and uh, even you as a person when I refer to, but not addressed directly, that's a third person. So right now I'm not sitting in front of my brother, I'm referring to him. That's the third person. So the first, second, and third person's speech are very codified in grammars of all languages. And the reason this is a common human break and classification is because that's the way the mind works. And so the mind has... Huh? Just to pause, I, I, I don't know. I can't hear you very well. Something's okay. just happened with the internet. I'm just checking with the audience. Can everyone hear Rajivji very well or is it jumpy for you as well? I'd love to hear in the comments, please. So let me say hello, hello, one, two, three, testing, one, two, three. Is it coming out? Is it okay? Or is it jumping? Yeah. No, now it's coming out okay, but your screen has frozen for me. I don't know if it is my internet or yours. Uh, okay. I can hear you now. Yeah. Is it okay now? Am I okay? I can hear you, but your screen has frozen for me. Okay. Just with the so audience. So should I should I log in should I log in and log back in, connect again? Oh, uh, maybe we can try that. I think they can all hear, sir. I think it is okay. my internet. Everyone can hear you. Yes. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. So, thank you. Thank so, you, everyone. So, sure. Sure. So basically, I was explaining that language in all culture, in all countries, in all places, has first person, second person, and third person. Let me just do something here. Okay. Um, I, I have a funny light that keeps uh, coming and I need to turn it off, maybe, and that will shut it down. Okay. So, um, so you know, 
because all languages of all cultures have first person, second person, and third person, it, you have to be convinced that hey, you know, this is because this is because uh, uh, that is the way the mind works. The mind works in, in, as a I, it thinks of itself. It it's in one I you relationship and it's in third person. So the uh, the reason this is important to understand is that all other faiths, not all, but let's say the important big faiths known around the world, are more about third person and second person. The God you're praying is second person, I, you. And, you know, philosophy is all third person, you're speculating and all that. There's very little first person intro in going within through meditation in all these other faiths. That is the hallmark of dharma. The dharma starts with first person. You got to work on yourself. You got to have training. You got to have a guru. You got to have your meditation system. You got to go into your first person. And this could take you months, years, lifetimes. When you are ready, when you have transformed first person, you bring that into your second person and third person life. And this I just told you in a few minutes, but this is the subject of huge book. I've got many, uh, you know, it's like hundreds of pages. Uh, this is a very important piece of work uh, that is a prerequisite, should be a prerequisite before any guru certifies their student to go around becoming an activist or philanthropist. They should say, you got to work on yourself. And they don't do that. So when there's a new person, like, you know, this concept of first person, second person and third person, it's very, yeah. it's, uh, it's very important as you have and you have already shared your own example of following this. Uh, now, there are a lot of people who are hearing this. They're hearing this for the first time. They have no, they, they have a very, they have a very basic background of very unconscious, to borrow your word, very unconscious spirituality. Now, when they hear something like that, uh, the worry I see around me when I tell people to do something like this, and I'm thinking that's what the audience would be feeling right now is, is that, Oh, if I start investing my time in this first person and my spiritual growth and you know all of that, you know, what about my job? What about my my income? You know, I mean, I have limited time. What about this? What about that? They, uh, it's very hard for someone who hasn't experienced that the benefits of that inner transformation and how much better you can do outside. Yes, it's very hard to sell this idea to them. So, how would you sell this idea to them, sir? So you know, uh, if you do a little bit of meditation you already get calmness and peace and more relaxed and less, less reactive. And it helps your performance. It helps America. Americans are now proving that, you know, you can be a better athlete. You can be a better public speaker. Uh, you can be better. So more, more and more churches and YMCAs and yogas and you know, these gyms and like you go to and corporate people are encouraging all these medical establishments are encouraging all these techniques that are part of our culture at the surface level. Okay, so already the benefit is there. Even with little practice, you're getting benefits because you know they're saying that okay, you do 30 days of meditation and it can reduce your blood pressure and whatnot. So the practical benefits in your second person, third person life, your stool sharir, all that is happening. It's believable because it's so. It is true. You could find out. It is not that you got to do this for 20 years before you get any benefit. It's not so. This is very good news because if it were the case that for 19 of the first 20 years, you get nothing out of it and you won't see any benefit and then suddenly it'll all happen, then, you know, there'll be few takers. But right now, since 
you get benefits from the very beginning in proportion to your investment. I mean, then an intelligent per person should say, you know, as a beginner doing some meditation, I'm getting all these benefits. So imagine if I do keep doing it, I'll get a lot more. It just seems like common sense. So what is happening preventing you is habit, old habit, which is also an unconscious thing. You see, the the unconscious level is where habits live. And and in meditation, you these level, these this un, you become you begin to see because these things become more conscious. You you witness yourself at a deeper level than you've ever had. You witness yourself deeper than a psychologist will ever know you because they cannot get that deep as you could see. But you are not you're not reactive. You are not uh, judgmental. You're not commenting on what you're witnessing. Witnessing as a technique is a very important technique. A lot of systems are leading to that. The the um, these uh, uh, mindfulness, what they call mindfulness, which is actually vipassana, is based on witnessing, and the Ramana Maharshi method, which is a Vedic method, is witnessing. The mantra method takes you to that because you start with the mantra, and then the mantra dissolves, and you have just witnessing. So you see, this raises and that in that state of silence and you know peace, you begin to witness without worrying. You just witness and, and you begin to understand things you never knew. So you see, once you have all, I'm just giving you a little glimpse. This is not a meditation lesson, but uh, you know. By the way, I'm certified as a meditation teacher. I've never, I don't practice it, but I've gone to. Uh, all the you know so many weeks here so many weeks there and get certified and all the, i have i have all the if i were looking to have a career as a guru or something i'm certified by the way but that's not what i want to do i just want to work on myself and uh my my external life uh in terms of uh, my swadharma is also actually working on myself ultimately i mean i want to help others encourage others but I want to do it because it's good for me. It, it, yeah. This is my calling. This is this is the only karma that I get to take with me. This is the only asset I build. No other asset has any value once I'm gone in this from this body. But this asset is is long term. So I'm actually also being very practical in a sense, uh, in, in, in accordance with our with our uh, values. You see. So uh, who is to fix this? I think it's a role of partly the parents, but partly the gurus, because, you know, in our tradition, these are the two forces, not, you know, YouTube and not, you know, government and all that. But parents and, uh, you know, the uh, gurus have to do this. Parents, I can see, well, they themselves are messed up and they will openly say, look, I haven't done all this. I don't know. How can I teach you? OK, so at least they're being honest. But gurus. Are not being honest because gurus are people who have supposedly achieved all this. They have supposedly experienced all this. They have transformed themselves. So let's assume they are right in the claim that internally the first person journey has worked for them and they are experiencing these things for real and not just faking it. Let's just assume that. Then when they manifest this, they should not turn suddenly very greedy. They should not turn suddenly, uh, you know, uh, into power and scaling. They're too quickly into scaling. Scaling is necessary for helping society on a large scale, but it should not be at the at the expense of quality. You know, every so often we all make the mistake of 
getting carried away. But then we have to come back. And every once in a while, we have to say, okay, now I'm going to stop all this because it's taking me the wrong direction. I've got to come back and get into myself, get into silence, cut myself off from whatever is going on, let people say whatever they want to because I want to recharge myself in the first person. So this first person is the building block, the foundation. It's, the, it's from where the giant tree comes. That's the roots. And the, the second and third person are the branches and the leaves and the flowers and all that stuff. So if you don't have a strong, robust first person, Adhyatma Vidya, Adhyatma Vidya, the inner mm -hmm. science, if you don't have that, then the whole thing is, is a fake, useless, dangerous thing because you could become a Rakshas who is out there who learned all these techniques and who's very, uh, uh, who's got the power and he doesn't have the ego, he, he hasn't given up his ego. And this ego is just like a Rakshas ego, very super powerful. That is very dangerous. And I see a lot of that happening. So, sir, how much of this Adhyatma Vidya, this first person work, uh, like when people talk about meditation, they just turn on meditation music and they you know, focus on their breath. I had one person who said that, oh, I can even meditate on this computer light. You know, I had this light, like, you know, the, the, the light that flickers on your computer. So, you know, I can just meditate on that or I can just meditate on my mobile phone's light. So how much of this Adhyatma Vidya and this focus on the first person, is it just focus on the first person or is it also connected to focusing on the the source of the first person. Excellent point. Your your question is leading towards Tantra. Because Tantra is a system which uses external, external senses to go inside. But external senses in a non-reactive way, not with indulgence, but witnessing. In fact, in fact, in Tantra, you use the sight, the sound, the touch, the taste, all the senses. And the idea is that through a certain series of uh, procedures that have that our rishis have discovered, uh, you go to a good Tantra teacher, you will learn how to uh, use your intentions in a way that you go beyond these intentions. Uh, you use the senses to go beyond the senses. You are no longer addicted to these things. You you do engage with these desires. You, you engage with the desires in a, in a way that you don't create a habit. So my guru used to say, uh, you know, if you really have a craving, if you really have a craving and you suppress it, it's a seed that will come out sometime later. You can delay it. But that craving is an unconscious thing. It's an unconscious algorithm that has become part of your, your memory. And, you know, you can't get rid of it by just ignoring it because one day something will, some mouse will click somewhere and it'll just start again. You see, <laughs> some suggestion or something. So what you have to do is you have to deal with it and get out, get, you know, go transcend beyond it. So in a sense, what Tantra, Tantra is a controlled environment for uh, letting the unconscious come out, experiencing it, experiencing the sensory side all our senses, the desires coming out in a way that will not reinforce this for more and more. There's a way to enjoy this delicious thing you're having. Enjoy it. Be in the present moment. And if it's not there, it's not there. If it's there, it's there. Uh, such that 
such that you don't sort of uh, store a reinforcement of the desire, but you sort of feel like, okay, I had it's done now, gone, fine. And maybe it'll take two attempts, five attempts, ten attempts, but Tantra basically gets you out of uh, these addictive behavior of sensory delights by actually not suppressing them, but letting them unfold in a controlled environment so that you release the, uh, you know, my guru used to say that you have given it, there's a winding up like a chabi, a key. Somebody has wound up or your life has wound up this particular habit in you. It has to unwind. And mm -hmm. it has to unwind in a way that you don't uh, reinforce more of it, which is what the wrong thing is that people are doing. You let it happen and you let it happen such that it becomes less and less of a burden. Right. So, uh, so this, this, I mean, this takes you even deeper into the, our, there's a whole different, there's a whole different level of discussion we can have someday, which is the difference between freedom to and freedom from most people don't understand. And Americans say we are the land of free. And I'd like to love to have discussion, but I only do it with very intelligent and philosophical people. Uh, the American idea of freedom is freedom too. I am free to travel, freedom to talk. I have a freedom to spend money. I have freedom to criticize. I can I have freedom to go drop bombs on somebody. Uh, I have all the freedoms too, which means that my actions have more, I have more agency to do actions, but they don't have freedom from my anger, freedom from, I, do, I ask them, do you have freedom from desire, freedom from greed, freedom from, uh, you know, all these uh, habits? Do you have freedom from yourself, your own inner self, which is habitual, which is this animal habit, habit thing going on? Do you have freedom from that? So if you don't have freedom from, then all this freedom too is basically that animal jumping, running around, having all kinds of uh, resources. So what you've done is you've taken the same pro the, the problematic side inside you, the problematic ego, and given it more power. And that's very dangerous. What you before you exercise freedom to go and get freedom from. Right. And that's the first person. So so a lot of the misunderstanding that is there around meditation, which is I'm just trying to summarize what I've understood so far, is uh is that it's not you don't meditate to have a better edition of the current life you're living. Yes, that may be a good byproduct in the beginning, but your meditation is to help you become free of your own senses, your own desires and your own self so that you can transcend your own self and really achieve uh, uh, a more powerful agency to do yes. so much more as your Swadharma. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And you know, Sri Aurobindo explains this very nicely that there are different levels of being. So from a certain level of being, which is all ego, you can get uh, ego's freedom to do this and that and all that. But that's a that's a you're, you're ruining the, your chances of a much better uh, life where if you're free from a certain level of ego and you're living, at, the being is at a different level of being, which is free from all this addictive behavior, reactiveness and so on. Freedom from all of this ego level gives you gives you a deeper experience and there you have the freedom too which is genuine freedom which is not you're not pretending to be free to do this free to do that in but re in reality you have no choice you're just carrying out your addictive behavior the ego's freedom too is a misnomer because the ego is a machine that has no choice it has to go and do all that it, it is not going to be contented 
unless it does those things. So that's not the real freedom that you want. So ultimately, you could also you could describe all this as first person, second person, third person. You could describe this as the difference between freedom from and freedom to. So there are many resources, and I'm writing about all this. You know, people say, well, "What do you mean by you writing 20 books?" Well, I'm, I've been discovering this for myself, researching it, living it, experimenting with it, interacting with it, and writing. Every morning I get up, the first thing I want to do is write uh, whatever comes. I uh, it, Whatever comes is faster than I can type. So sometimes I dictate and somebody is kind enough to transcribe for me. Uh, some have uh, thousands of hours of untranscribed audios that I've just done over the years. And now somebody has set up a, uh, behind me, you'll see somebody set up a recording studio. They're saying, why don't you, when you get this, why don't you just speak in a camera? And I might, I might try to do that. Thank you. So, uh, sir, a few more questions before we start taking audience questions. And I also want to be mindful about your time because I know you have some things lined up after this. Yeah, I have a, I have a, it's, let's say 25, 20 minutes because I have to go for, you know, I just got, a, I had surgery and I had all these problems and I went for physical therapy. I, and then the, whatever, for whatever reasons, I stopped the therapy. Now I'm going back and I need all this. So to, I have an appointment. So I need to get on with that too. So I, yes. I'll, I will, uh, I don't know when that is, but I will tell you, uh, I will tell you it is uh, uh, 15 minutes from now. If I can, if I can be excused, that will be wonderful. Sure. So I'll, uh, I'll, I have a couple of questions and then we we'll go to audience questions very quickly. Uh, so considering the environment that you've talked about, where the, the 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 gurus that are available on YouTube, I mean, they are trying to do help for society, but it's a little diluted. It's uh, you know, it's not better, and it's more in the expansion mode and reaching out to more people mode. And then we are all at different planes of existence, and some of us are just at the you know, artha artha more artha, uh, that plane of existence. Uh, and then we have all of these different uh, problems in family life and family structures, and you know, while we're chasing material success. You know, there are these real problems that are there because we have forgotten our own things. Now, in this environment, what are what are the three things that you would recommend? Uh, so one, the number one, I believe what you've already mentioned is connecting with the first person. But in, I'm asking more about how to. Uh, so what are the three how to's you could give to the audience today about, you know, to keeping themselves mentally and emotionally stable uh, by connecting to our great uh, Vedic tradition? But some how-tos from you, sir. So I would say that uh, uh, a first-person how-to, a second-person how-to, and a third-person how-to might give you a balanced approach. So you're not sort of uh, running away from life and just in the first person. So first person, we've already discussed, you need to have a serious meditation practice uh, taught by a qualified person who not just one some YMCA or some gym teaching or something like that, uh, but something truly authentic from our tradition. Second person is your relationships. You should try and keep good relationships, mix with people who are the right kind, who have a good effect on you. Uh, you know, surround yourself with people who are on the right path because that second person relationship will influence you also. Uh, you need to love them and understand them and vice versa. And these may be relatives, these may be friends, these may be colleagues, they may be whoever, but when you come across somebody, who you think is on the right path and you want to be uh, in their company because it'll help you that that's a I, I teach my kids go and collect relationships 
when you are young. Collect long-term relationships with those who are not for any personal goal. You do need a good relationship with the boss so that you can do well and you all of that. But you also need those who are deeply involved in some something similar. Uh, they could be of any faith, any race, doesn't matter. Uh, but they should be good people. So the second thing is I think you should collect good relationships. That That is very important. Uh, third thing is the third person, which is ideas, concepts. So you should be an avid reader. I mean, I, I, it's sad that people are not good readers nowadays. And this is not only about our texts, but also other people's texts. You should read about others so you can respond to them. If I, Since I have read a lot and studied a lot and engaged a lot of others, I can be very confident in dealing with them. They're not going to bowl me over. They're not going to you know, convert me, turn me into something uh, because I have I've been there. I've done that. I've understood them. I, I can relate to them with confidence. I can even coach them if they are interested. I can even help them out. I can diagnose them I, when they are in the third person or in the second person. Some situation comes up. I can I can relate to what must be happening in their first person, which causes them to be like this. You know, so so I, I have more resources because I'm looking at all three persons. So I would say that you should have a diversified lifestyle uh, of the first person, second person, and third person kind. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, one last question from me regarding this third person. I mean, the second person and the third person. Uh, there is, you know, people are celebrating Pride Month. I think today is like the third day of the Pride Month, um, there's a lot of onslaught from the external world outside. So even if somebody's trying their best to do this first person, second person, third person work, it can get, a, get, can get very confusing outside. Uh, also, and but we're also living in times where even uh, Americans themselves are standing up to this onslaught and saying that this is not what is going to benefit my society and you need to stop. And you could look at the... Uh, you know, the banning or the boycott of Target because of the stuff that they did, and then Bud Light, and then recently on Twitter, there was this documentary that was relieved by, released by one creator, Matt, Matt Walsh, Mark Walsh, that was about what is a woman. So now we're even at the point of defining what is a woman because people have lost so much connection with themselves and their contribution to society that they don't even know who they are anymore. So as people are doing this first person, second person, third person work, um, what can they so i i believe i'm taking the lead from your answer to my previous question is that purva paksha am i using the term right in the right place yeah, um, yeah purva paksha is the study of the other uh, uh, you know in order to understand them better in order to cope with them in order to know how to respond to them how to be protected from them how to help them how to love them you need to it's like what a psychologist does with the patient but what you can do with the whole culture society civilization uh, their history, how they have been shaped, the way they are. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from that. So I think you can do Purva Paksha of all these social phenomena that you're mentioning. This is just one example. There's whole, we can have a long discussion on this whole wokeism, uh, of which this is a part. And I've, my book, Snakes in the Ganga, deals with that uh, and how it's invading India right now, right up to the, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who's the wokeist. And right up to all these billionaires, Mahindras and this one, that one, all of them funding these kind of things in Harvard because it's fashionable and it's cool and it'll get them a seat at the table, at the white man's table, and they'll be considered some like a like a honorary white liberal 
And so they have these complexes. Our people have these full of these complexes. So, you know, when you are celebrating, we started out this whole thing with celebrating the Indians who have done well and become very rich. But you also got to understand that some of them are actually very confused and mixed up about these civilizational matters. So they are a product of all this unconsciously. They are not only not being thankful and grateful, uh, they are, in fact, uh, abusing this power that uh, our civilization gave them. They're abusing it in the sense of funding the wrong things. Right. So to protect ourselves from these external influences, one thing is Purva Paksha. They, people can educate themselves so that they can be strong. And one way to do Purva Paksha is, is also to read your books. Uh, there's a lot of uh, analysis, a lot of deep work that you've already done that we can just benefit so easily. So what, what I try to do in my books is turn my experiences and my, my knowledge and understanding in a very easy to read, digestible way so that success is success of a book of mine is when somebody like you reads it and says, you know what, I can start using this framework and this terminology and this way of thinking to relate to my own experiences. I've had this experience and I've had that experience and I've seen this U-turn, I've seen that digestion and I, I, I want to do this uh, reversing the gaze. And, you know, so, so they begin to see patterns that I have had experiences. So I take my adhyatmic patterns, my external patterns that I'm experiencing, transform them into frameworks and theories that can explain them. And then others can take these and relate to their own experiences. Then I feel very happy when I come across people of that kind. And I do come across a very large number of such people. That makes me very happy. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. We'll take a few audience uh, questions. There have been a few here. Uh, there are some thank yous as well. Um, we have Anu Vadva from Connecticut, and she's thanking you. Thank you so much, Rajiv ji. You read my mind. This is about 30 minutes ago. You answered my question before I asked. Inner transformation before going all out, before going all out and serving. So she's connected with the first person concept that you have introduced us to. Uh, also, we have a comment here that we need the money before we can go out. Money is very important. Uh, to take care of our needs and we need all of that before we can go out and we have really understood the importance of that so any comment on that yeah i think that uh, our uh, uh, varna system as a form of social capital uh, looked after you know political capital in the kshatriyas and uh, vaishyas bringing economic capital and brahmins as people who brought in uh, intellectual capital and so on uh, and, and Shudras who had who had embodied knowledge, knowledge that is embodied in you, not necessarily theorized, but it's embodied in you, practiced. So these were not uh, by birth and, you know, not meant to be conflict with each other, but all working together. The part, different parts of uh, Purush have to work together. No Purush wants to be without his feet. So you can't say the feet are useless because they are low, uh, mm -hmm. uh, below. Uh, no human being would say, cut my feet off because they, I don't need them or I'll exploit my feet. I mean, nobody would do that. So this misinterpretation of Purush Shukta is very dangerous for us. You know, uh, I see this all as harmony, coexistence. Now, the the important thing is that if you look at it this way, the, the our ecosystem should have all a balance of Artha also, and balance of all of this political strength and intellectual strength. All of this goes together. What happened is, when the East India Company came, they uh, first captured the artha, the trade. They came as traders, 
and they captured the Vashya and they took over the trading system, became the rich people. And they didn't bother the Brahmins intellectually. They let them continue at first. And they didn't bother the Rajas, the, the Kshatriyas. They let them continue. And then when they had enough money and they had gotten in, they'd done enough food paksha on us, understood us, on our vulnerabilities, how to make us fight each other, all of that. Then the next thing they did is they became the Kshatriyas. They took over rule. They took over, uh, you know, governance, which is Kshatriya. So first they took over the Vashya role as, as traders, as people making money. Then they expanded it to include the Kshatriya role. And they still left the Brahmins alone. They later realized that, okay, now we're ready, powerful enough. We're going to replace, uh, you know, Sanskrit with English and, dis, you know, disempower the uh, Brahmins and take over a new school, create a new school system to produce mediocre you know, people that will serve us. So this takeover of Varna happened one by one. And we all became Shudras. India colonized became Shudras, all of us. Just no political capital, intellectual capital, financial capital. But we embodied, we, luckily it's the Shudras who protected and preserved because they preserved traditions as practice, unconsciously. They were not able to even a Shudra disconnected from the Brahmin is not able to understand, theorize, intellectualize, but he knows this is right instinctively. So mm -hmm. that continued. See, now we've revived at the level of Vashya, the economic empowerment. First, I guess we got political independence. You could say we became Kshatriyas, although one could argue that the Nehru family were not were still pseudo-British Kshatriyas, you know. So now we have politically our own Vedic style Kshatriyas, let's say, let's disregard all the problems here and there, let's say better off than before. And we also are better off than before in terms of uh, Vashyas because we have all these rich people, good GDP, all that. So we need to reclaim the other stuff. We also need to reclaim our intellectual heritage. We haven't done that. The, the Brahmins, and I, there are people who are biologically Brahmin by birth and all. I'm talking about people who are really practicing. Uh, the, true intellectual life, they haven't done a good job. We need that's the next frontier. We need to create good Brahmins uh, to to give us all of this back. So the earth will come. Earth has to come as part of this whole ecosystem. So as an individual, uh, one also. So this is at the ecosystem level, but as an at an individual level also, we want to develop the earth, <laughs> the karma, taking care of ourselves. But it all needs to be informed by dharma yes and, I, and you know when people ask me what i should do and i tell them you're a student you should first establish yourself be secure make your needs met so that you won't regret and then come and talk to me because a lot of people say i want to leave everything come to you and i look at their family situation it's irresponsible for me to encourage them until the unless the person is ready for it right so they need to get these things in place, again, informed by dharma as a preparation so that they can really live the true swadharma in that sense. Thank mm -hmm. you. Uh, one last question. And I don't know how much time we have, but there's this very uh, interesting question here. Two interesting questions, in fact. Uh, how can Indian parents protect their children as young as elementary school from woke onslaught and woke literature at public schools? Well, there's already, if you're in the American, if you're in, uh, in the United States, there's already a 
pushback by whites, I guess, Republicans, right wings. I mean, I'm, I don't want to be either left wing, right wing. I want to be both wings and have all my wings together and nobody should clip my wings. I don't want to be a handicapped guy with one wing and not the other. I mean, I fly on both wings. So, uh, but I'm not referring to all that. I'm just saying that you should pick whoever is aligned with your ideology and work with them, help them. They'll help you. So there is a pushback against all this. But uh, it's also depending on the state you live in and what's the politics locally. I think you have to counter it with your, a lot of home education for your kids. A lot of home education, which may be a blessing in disguise. Maybe you cannot just abandon and outsource education to the school system. You know, you have to say, hey, listen, ultimately it's my responsibility. I'm going to read to the, my kids. I'm going to educate them. I'm going to. I'm even going to teach them to reflect that there may be some bad things in media and bad things in education and bad things in the textbooks. Not everything is correct that you read. Not every teacher is good necessarily. This will make the person really stronger. Okay, thank you. Just one more question, Rajiv ji. Uh, like, when does this work on the first person end so that we can go outside and start serving? Or is it like, how, how do they know that, okay, I have reached a stable state in my first person so, in the person? So in my case, I was lucky. In my case, I was lucky. I had a guru kind of supervising and telling me, okay, now go for it. I know the exact instance. We don't have time that I know the exact instance when a certain opportunity came from somewhere else inviting me to do this, that. And I took to ask my guru and I was very surprised. Unlike before, the, this time the guru said, go for it. Go explain to them. You're ready. So now for each person, how to do it, I don't know if there is one standard answer, but I would say you will probably know when uh, you see the, the ego is a very clever fellow. The ego will play the game of Advait and pretend it's not there anymore. The ego will start saying, hey, this guy wants to put me out of business. But I, I, I'll kind of fake it. You know, so this guy wants to hear the voice of, uh, you know, super consciousness and wants to hear uh, Bhagwan and wants to hear a different level of being, which is from Anand and not from uh, desire. So I'm going to fake it. I'm Anand talking, you know. So this guru, this uh, ego disguised as uh, desireless witnessing, desireless, uh, you know, altruism. This is so common. You know, this is the person who has theoretically memorized all this Advait like a parrot, but they haven't really achieved this. And so they go around talking parrot, ba ba ba. They know a lot of verses. They can quote right and left, and they sound very erudite. Uh, and, and, you know, that is the danger of the ego learning to be an erudite Advaitin so that, you know, you can say, hey, I, I'm doing fine. But you don't know that actually you it, it's the worst thing that can happen is the ego protecting itself by faking that it is this Advaitin thing inside you. That is what the guru was able to detect and work with me on until that is dissolved. And that is where I think a second person, a good friendship, a good second person who's really not out competing with you, bringing you down, but who's really there with you. Uh, would be a great asset if you can find such a person. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rajivji, for uh, gracing this channel, for uh, you know so many wonderful uh, notes of wisdom from you today and so many personal stories also. We are very fortunate to witness that today. Uh, as, as we close this session, do you have any final words for the audience? 
I think uh, the audience, uh, uh, based on the few questions, are pretty uh, interested in this sort of thing, and I would encourage them to continue. I think you're a good host. You really, really got. Uh, we, I, I had many more things to say, but that would take even longer. We can do some other time. But you asked a very good penetrating question. You're. A, I would encourage the audience to listen to Namita, join her, her movement, her her channel. I'll uh, also you you send me the link. I'll promote this and send send me a downloadable version and we'll also put it up on our channel and then you'll get even more i want to encourage young people like you to do this sort of thing uh, uh because you know i have to turn things over to the next generation and i'm very interested in finding young people who are the right kind of young people and mentor them and turn things over so they'll continue this work so i just want to thank you also for uh, a remarkable coincidental meeting we had please thank your father uh, yes. uh, you know, who pointed it out to you and brought you to me and uh, who also brought my book Be Different to your attention many years ago. Uh, so please thank him also. And uh, let's keep in touch. Namaste. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for coming and encouraging our work here. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste.